6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his session entitled, The Book of Romans. Well, let's get to the second section. There's a little trilogy here in the middle of the book on Israel. Romans 9, Israel's past. Romans 10, Israel's present. And Romans 11, Israel's future. There are other three-chapter trilogies throughout the Bible. You have the three. The Sermon on the Mount is actually a trilogy, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, the Spiritual Gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. The Second Coming in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. There's others. This little trilogy is the issue of Israel as distinct from the church. Don't let anyone sell you that the church is Israel now and vice versa. No, nonsense. And that's tragic because there are many, many prominent authors and churches and so forth that are that have no grasp of God's commitment to Israel, despite the repeated commitments in the Old and New Testament. To deny that is to call God a liar. Be careful. There are many, there are many places in Scripture you can have different views, especially in eschatology, that is study of the last things. People have slightly different views. That's fine. But be careful that you don't adopt a view that ends up making God a liar. Be careful. Don't impugn the character of God in your views. Mm -mm. But this does raise a question that these chapters try to deal with. If God is so faithful to His Word, as we've just surveyed in Romans 8, that none can be condemned that He has justified, and that none in Him can be separated, that's the pitch we've heard, right? Then why have the Israelites who were sovereignly chosen and given unconditional promises, completely failed and then been rejected. See the problem? This would sound like a rebuttal to everything that's gone before. And that's what Paul deals with. Where does a Jew go? See, there's also a problem of how Gentiles are to relate to Jews. Not only are Jews should relate to Gentiles, but Gentiles should relate to Jews. If circumcision is of no value without faith, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? And when I say circumcision, I include all the ceremonial accoutrements there. This is the same question that was underlying Acts 15. And it is answered in Romans 9, 10, and 11. From Genesis 12 to Acts chapter 2, it's all about Israel. And the whole point of those chapters is that God keeps His promises. And despite Israel's failures, those promises will be kept nationally, not just individually. You see, you and I need a doctrinal understanding, not just a devotional understanding. Most of us in this room, I think, have a devotional understanding at some level. But at the same time, we also need to have a doctrinal understanding of the Word of God. The Abrahamic covenant that we emphasized back in chapter 12. Go back and review that when you get a chance. Every benefit you and I have before God derives from His commitment to Abraham. 
I'll make of thee a great, there were seven elements. Remember, I make thee a great nation, I'll bless thee, I'll make thy name great, thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse of thee, and in thee, in Abraham, shall all families of the earth be blessed, not just the Jews. If you are in Christ, you are grafted in. You are grafted in. That covenant was unconditional. It's very important to understand this, because the world at the moment is challenging that covenant. All the tensions in the Middle East are challenges to the God's land grant to Abraham. That was a divinely ordered ritual, where the participants in those days would divide a sacrifice and then repeat the terms of a covenant they agreed to as they watched through it. And what God said, as Abraham set that all up, divides a sacrifice. And the idea was that the participants would walk through it, figure eight, repeating the terms of the covenant. That was the way they did things in those days. Except here, before it start, after it's set up, God puts Abraham in deep sleep. He can't walk through. What's his point? God went through in the form of a torch and so forth. He goes it alone to demonstrate that this commitment is unilateral. This can, it's unconditional. The terms of this covenant were declared eternal and unconditional. It was re reconfirmed by an oath in Genesis 22 and elsewhere. It was reconfirmed to Isaac and to Jacob. And incidentally, when it was done, they were in acts of disobedience. That's in Genesis 26 and elsewhere. And the New Testament declares it unchangeable, immutable. The covenant of Abraham. Very important to understand that that stands and our, our benefits derive from its certainty. There is no other promise like that to any other people that's unique. You need to understand that. And how do we get our benefit? We rely on our derivative benefit from the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, none other than Jesus Christ. You and I derive all our benefits in terms of a Jewish Messiah. If we have that, great, what, what, what good is it to be a Jew? I mean, what, what's the blessing of a Jew? Well, first of all, they receive the words of God. That's what Romans 3 emphasized. They're called Israelites, which means the princes of God, Genesis 32. They are adopted as sons, not just genealogically, but also by adoptions in Deuteronomy 7 and the glory in Exodus 24. And through all the covenants, those are all benefits. The giving of the law was through them. The temple service and priesthood is modeled through them. All the special promises of the future kingdom. Ruling the world, they will rule the world from Israel. Mount Zion. The world will be politically ruled from there when the time comes. And they also had the blessing of the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. And the Messiah, ultimately the Messiah would come from them. That's the big one. They will be blinded, though. Remember when he rode the donkey? And we went through that so often. The, the donkey rode, uh, when Jesus rode the donkey through Jerusalem, he wept. He said, because you do not recognize this thy day, these things are hidden from thy sight. For how long? Paul in Romans tells us how long. He's, Paul says, for I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Watch these untils. They're milestones. Until what? The fullness of the Gentiles become in. Don't confuse the fullness of the Gentiles with the times of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles is the completeness of the church. And I really love this. This implies that there's a number, a specific number, when it's complete, the church is complete. 
When that number is reached, the Father will say to the Son, who, the Son's not sitting on the Father's throne, right? When that number is complete, the Father will say to the Son, go get him. And he'll gather his own. That doesn't end God's plan. There's much more coming, but that's, that that's closes a certain uh, dispensation, if you will. Well, yeah, that's in, there's a finite number. Not a finite date, a finite number. When that number's reached, it's over. Now, that intrigues me, because that means there's a counter somewhere in heaven that keeps track of how full that fullness is, right? And when it's full, it's over. Then son go get him, and then Satan knows he has but little time. This is interesting. Satan doesn't know what the number is, and he doesn't know what its goal is, but he knows there's a finite number, and it's approaching that. Every time somebody trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior, a counter in heaven goes click. Another one, click. There's a counter keeping tabs. In India, there's a hundred million people that listen to the Christian broadcast there. They have four million decisions last year. There's a lot going on there. Something like 18,000 pastors planning 13 churches a week. Exciting stuff going on. Those counter, that counter is speeding up. Now what intrigues me about this is Satan doesn't know that when that counter clicks next, he knows he has but little time. It, change, he's, he's, it opens a window of opportunity. He's got to move and move fast. But he doesn't know when that is. Every time that somebody accepts Christ, he's shook. Do you realize that Satan has been in shock treatment for 1,900 years? <laughs> the other side, you know, there may be somebody in this room that has yet to discover Jesus Christ, which when you do accept Christ, you might be that last one. We really wish you'd get it together because we'd like to get out of here. Okay? <laughs> There's a prerequisite to the second coming, not to the rapture. That can happen any moment. But there's a prerequisite to the second coming. Hosea 5.15 highlights it. He says, where God says, I will go and return to my place. He can't return if he hasn't left it, huh? I, re I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me earnestly. And we talked about that in Hosea. That's by way of review. But let's, the word, there's another one of these untils. There are three untils in the restoration of Israel. The first condition is the fullness of the Gentiles to be brought in. We just talked about that. The second one is they have to acknowledge their offense. The third condition is until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles start, the times, not fullness, the times of the Gentiles started with Nebuchadnezzar and they complete with the Antichrist. Three conditions. Well, that's the final section of the book of Romans is, uh, is five chapters on the ask the so what question, our responsibilities from gifts, from civil responsibilities, Christian maturity, unity within the body, and personal greetings. You know, there are only two worldviews. We've covered this at the beginning, but this ties it together. We're, we're either an accident of random chance with no destiny, or we're the result of deliberate and purposeful creation. One or the other. Can't, there aren't any other, other alternatives. And out of this come our questions of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? And to whom I, am I accountable? These, our answers to these four questions will derive from which of those two worldviews we have. 
Every answer to every question will derive from your worldview. It's interesting, in Genesis, the first 11 verses, the first section of Genesis, we had the personal volition, free will established, the freedom to choose your own destiny. Marriage was established, or the model of God's model for intimacy. And the family, the most important element or segment of our society. And of course, human government. And Romans 13 gets into the human government thing. We need to understand that there's no vocabulary in the New Testament for a representative government. They were used to, they were used to uh, monarchies, in effect. We have a strange kind of responsibility because the people who run this country are our employees. We have a responsibility before God. And a very unique opportunity is a responsibility. What the Romans 13 deals with, you know, that uh, rulers are to be a terror to evil works. What happens when they're a terror to good works? There, therein lies the challenge. We have a dual citizenship. And we need to understand that. But we get back, let's talk about maturity. If you know, if you squeeze a lemon, you get what? Lemon juice, right? You squeeze an orange, you get orange juice, right? If you, what do you get if you squeeze a Christian? You should get Christ. Peter Drucker, who's one of the outstanding authors in the management literature, anybody that's been in professional management knows the writings of Peter Drucker. And he's quite an interesting guy. But somebody asked him once, are you a Christian? Felt that he was by a number of things he said without getting into theology. He had a great answer. So that's for you to tell me. Ooh, I like that. Chuck, are you a Christian? I don't know, you tell me, am I? I like that. Romans 14 talks about spiritual maturity in a surprising way. There's some advice here. It says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him that which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. What we're talking about here is some people, you know, don't eat meat for religious reasons. Others are, you know, some are vegetarians, some don't eat anything. Fine. Either way. Don't let one, you know, disparage the other is what he's saying, right? But I want you to notice something subtle here. Who's the one that's weak in the faith? The one that's living by rules. See? One believes that he may eat all things. Anything's all right. Another who is weak eateth herbs, limits himself to herbs. You see, it's the person that's trying to bound himself with rules that's weaker in faith. That's why he needs the rules. It's a very subtle thing, but notice what he's saying. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And it goes on here. See, the inversion of perspective, the person that's weak is oriented to legalistic externals. Keeping the Sabbath, watching a kosher diet, or whatever. Those are rules. Doesn't mean they're bad. My wife and I try to keep the Sabbath. We, we, have a, we celebrate with a, a Messianic Jew on Friday night. little potluck dinner and a Bible study and so forth. We have, uh, but we don't keep the Sabbath in a Jewish sense. No, no, we're not. No, we have, we have uh, 
we keep the Sabbath because we notice that uh, in the millennium, this, the, the temple will only be open on Shabbat and the new moon. All nations are going to go up to Jerusalem to worship on Shabbat and the, the Feast of Tabernacles. So there isn't, there isn't anywhere in the Bible that Sunday replaced Saturday. That's not the point. We worship on Sunday because we're celebrating the Lord's resurrection. That's fine. No problem with that. For ourselves, we, 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 just, we, we are trying to avail ourselves of the blessing that God has. He has rules that He suggested that enrich our lives. So what my wife and I do, we have three rules. We agree to do whatever we're going to do together. We agree, whatever we do, we can do deliberately. And we also do together. And the third rule is there are no other rules. <laughs> so don't keep the Sabbath in a Jewish sense. We keep the Sabbath in the sense of Genesis too. But the main point is, uh, we're, we're not oriented to the legalistic externals, but we've just discovered what a blessing that can be. See, the ones that are weak are oriented to legalistic externals. The ones that are strong have full liberty in Christ. They're not measured by what we give up. People say, come up to me, Chuck, is it okay for Christians to smoke? Or to dance? Or whatever. Fill in the blank with whatever you like. That's not the question they should be asking. That question demonstrates a lack of faith, a, no understanding of our liberty in Christ. Now, our liberty in Christ doesn't give us a license to sin. There is a little different issue. But uh, we need to understand the difference between the, the faith and the law. See, Romans 15, one man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord doth he not regard it. He that eateth, eateth the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. Love this. Colossians, in Paul's epistle Colossians, he says a similar thing. Colossians 2. He says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of any holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. See, all these things are instructive. There's no greater blessing for a Christian than to discover the prophetic significance of the Jewish things. Even, even Hanukkah. It's in John 10, verse 22, for those that haven't looked it up. doesn't mean you keep them in the sense of rigid laws and rules. Those are just to be instructional. We have liberty in Christ. He's the fulfillment. All these, everything is prophetic of Christ anyway. Romans 15.4 is also a verse that's very, very precious because it demonstrates, it certifies, if you will, the integrated, purposeful design of the total package. For whatsoever things... How much of the Bible does that include? Just the New Testament? Just the Old Testament? No. For whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning that we, through the patience or perseverance and comfort or encouragement of the Scriptures, might have hope. Whatsoever things. So when you wade through those tedious chapters of Leviticus, know that if you're diligent and peek behind them, there are treasures. Every detail, every word in the Scripture was there deliberately by design. And once you discover that for yourself, that doesn't mean you'll unravel all of them. Heavens, that's a lifetime thing. But the more you unravel them and realize they're all there with a purpose, that it's all like, it's like a huge tapestry. 
And some of it, you, you can get too close to the threads to really understand the total design. Stand back and see how it all put together. You realize you're dealing with a masterpiece in which every detail, every thread in it is deliberately there for a purpose. Master craftsman. Now the rest of the book, near the end of the book, you have personal greetings. There are more personal greetings in the book of Romans than any other epistle. There's over 33 by name plus others. And they include some that are slaves and some that are royalty. The whole span is there. Now, if somebody says, if somebody says, who wrote the book? If you want to challenge one of your friends at the Bible says, who wrote the book of Romans? One Paul. There's Tertius. He was his amanuensis. It was written by Tertius for Paul. Paul dictated it. <laughs> okay. It's, see, their professional secretaries were very common in those days. Many people there were very bright, but maybe not literate in the usual sense. Some were not literate at all. Some, even they were skilled. They had the, the, that's what we mean by manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts. That's where it comes from. Okay. Uh, Romans were written by Tertius, 1 Corinthians by Sosthenes, 2 Corinthians by Timothy, Philippians and Colossians by Timothy, 2 Thessalonians by Silvanus, Philemon by Timothy, 1 Peter by Silvanus. Read 2 Peter and compare it to 1 Peter in Greek. You can't believe the difference. Peter's Greek, the second letter, is crude by comparison. 1 Peter is polished because it's done by a professional. These were secretaries, stenographers, in effect. Not everybody was like Matthew who took shorthand. And I'm not saying they necessarily took shorthand, but they were professional public stenographers. They may have, they, they may have uh, indulged in that for themselves. I, have, I, don't, I don't know the technology there. Well, we've gone through Romans. Remaining, there are, uh, of these 13, are 12 others. And we will take 10 of them uh, subsequently all in one session. We won't go into this much detail. We'll just highlight the main elements of some of these. We will leave First and Second Thessalonians uh, for later because we're, when we, we get to, uh, I think it's hour 21, we'll have a review of eschatology. We'll focus on those eschatological epistles as part of that review because we'll have our hands full next time skimming through these, uh, uh, the other Pauline epistles. The session after that, we'll take the, we'll take the book of Hebrews as the exemplar and then we'll talk about the Hebrew epistles. And then, of course, we'll have, we're setting ourselves up for a review of eschatology, and then we'll also budget three sessions for the book of Revelation. Or actually, yeah, okay. So we have Romans, definitive doctrines you've gone through. Corinthians will be the order in the church, the Galatians, law versus grace. Ephesians deals with the heavenlies. There's some surprising, uh, breathtaking things in Ephesians. Philippians, joy through suffering. Colossians, Christ is preeminent above all things. The Thessalonians are the eschatological. Eschatology is simply being a fancy word for the study of the end times. So the second coming primarily is the focus of second, first and second Thessalonians. The two letters to Timothy are Paul's advice as a pastor. Titus, same thing. And Philemon is intercession. You, you get the whole grasp of what intercession is by this little tiny little epistle called Philemon. We'll obviously summarize that next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. And let's bow our hearts. Father, we, we are almost breathless as we try to embrace the sweep of your word. We thank you, Father, for 
Paul's diligence. We thank you for his incredible intellect. But above all, we thank you, Father, for the word that you've breathed through him to our hearts. We thank you, Father, for this incredible treasure of your word that you've entrusted to us. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit it would bear fruit for you. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit we might be more effective stewards of these treasures that you've given us. Oh, Father, we just would pray that you would draw us ever closer to you. Let us know your heart. Help us to begin to comprehend the extremes that you have gone to on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the power and the opportunity to be freed from the enslavement of this world. That you have provided a destiny for us that is literally incomprehensible to us. Oh, Father, we would just ask you to increase in each of us a new hunger, a new passion for your word. Help us to, to discover the riches that are there to the diligent. But above all these things, Father, we would ask that you'd help us to grow in grace. Help us to understand that grace. and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that in all these things we might be more fruitful and more pleasing in thy sight. Not by power nor by might, but by your Spirit. As we recommit ourselves without any reservation into your hands, in the name of and to the glory of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.